0: gentlemen I don't believe this I do not believe this do you know who this is you have any any idea who this man is now quit I'm gonna know I'm gonna talk right now you listen relax I'm gonna talk for you this ladies and gentlemen this is the greatest manager in the history of the sport of wrestling yes surpass what this man has done jim Cornette. what are you doing here in the wwf Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to the 100th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and boy, am I glad and excited to be here for this gala 100th episode extravaganza during which I will be joined by Jim Cornette. That's right. You heard it right. Jim Cornette. In just a few moments, he will be my guest on the show. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Just want to first say, I hope everybody had a very Merry Christmas, and I want to wish everybody a Happy New Year, 2024 on the way. It may have already begun by the time you are listening to this, and I'm thrilled to be doing this podcast. You know, 99 weeks ago, 99 weeks ago I started this project, Shut Up and Wrestle. And I didn't know, you know what people were going to make of it, if they were going to take to it. I wasn't even sure what I wanted it to be. You know, at one point I thought maybe I might have a permanent co-host. Maybe we might talk about contemporary wrestling, but there's certainly more than enough people out there who do that and who do that well. So I decided to focus on my true love, my great love, Old school wrestling, and I decided to draw on many of my friends, associates, acquaintances in the wrestling business for a rotating platform of guests. I'm thankful to the great Brian Lass and to Arcadian Vanguard for giving me the platform to do it. You know, I was going to do it. I was going to do it as something on my own, something independently, a voice in the wilderness, you might say. But boy, am I glad to have been welcomed into. The fraternity of Arcadian Vanguard. So, thank you, Brian, for giving me the platform for Shut Up and Wrestle, for giving me the exposure to an audience of fantastic fans of old school wrestling. And especially more to the point for this week, thank you for making it possible to bring your co host, Jim Cornette, to Shut Up and Wrestle this week, because without Brian Lass, this would not have happened. Now, Having said that, a couple of things I want to get to, want to mention on this episode before we get to the monumental conversation with the head of the Cult of Cornette. I get books here from time to time here at Shut Up and Wrestle sent to me, and sometimes I make mention of them on the air because they are so impressive. One of them is a brand new book that I got called The Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers. You may have seen this online or heard of it. It is by Mike Rogers, edited by Frank Culbertson. And they were kind enough to send me a copy of this book. And I have to say, if you are a fan of wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, or if you're interested in learning about it, then this is the book that you want to get. The Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers. Check it out. Look for it. You won't regret it. Also want to mention that I recently took part in an interview for a short documentary film On Joe Turner's Arena, better known as the Capitol Arena, the old building in Washington, D.C., where Vince McMahon Sr. first presented Capitol Wrestling, later known as the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. I was honored that student filmmaker Christian Calloway, a historian of the history of Washington, D.C., chose me to be interviewed for this documentary. He reached out to me. You know, it's available on YouTube. I encourage you to look for it. If you just do a web search on Joe Turner's Capital Arena, you will find the documentary. It's about 10 minutes long. It is well worth your time. It is a fascinating, fascinating film, and I was glad to be a part of it. Now, having said all that, let us get to the main event, what I know you have been waiting for. I want to just get it out of the way right away. The language restrictions are out the window this week. It's Jim fucking Cornette. There is no way that I was going to keep this man to a PG rated vocabulary. So that is not the case this week. Put the kids to bed, cover your ears if you have to. But I really hope you won't do that because you'll miss out on a lot of the fun. Also, want to say that, you know, this is my show and it is my interview. As I say during the interview, uh, these are the questions that I felt compelled to ask Mr. Cornette. I, as many know, used to work for WWE, so there's a strong concentration in this conversation on his time at WWE, his time in OVW. We talk a lot about that because that is what I can relate to from my own professional life. But have no fear, we do also dig back a little bit further than that into the past, into Jim's young fandom, if you are looking for a discussion on the Midnight Express and Jim's lengthy career managing them, I encourage you to check out the vast and lengthy archives of the Jim Cornette experience and the drive-through with Jim Cornette, where he discusses the finer points of his career at great length managing Bobby and Stan and Dennis. But before you do that, Why don't you listen to my conversation with Jim Cornette, which I will now take you to. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, it is my distinct honor and privilege to welcome to the show a man who is known far and wide for his gracious tact and diplomacy and who sows nothing but harmony and goodwill throughout the internet wrestling community. A man who lives by the adage, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. He's had some success in podcasting in recent years, used to be a wrestling manager of some note, and I think he trained a couple of guys who went on to halfway decent careers. This one's been a long time coming, and I hope you will all join me in extending a heartfelt welcome to one of pro wrestling's national treasures. His hometown is known for baseball bats, but for some reason... He carries a tennis racket Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. James E. Cornette.
1: What well, was that supposed to be fucking funny? Huh? I You're try You're a comedy writer now? You're trying to entertain the masses here with that feeble attempt Solomon Grundy, that feeble attempt at humor?
0: Well, you should Good know Evans. I, I typically do not even prepare that much for these So, you know, I, I, I usually don't I've even write I've heard that from most
1: of your listeners
0: <laughs> to, to write an introduction, which I did for this Is, you know, that that's something special I don't do that for just anybody
1: Well, just the fact that you have time to write What with you writing everything around the world You're writing for Inside the Ropes You're writing for the wrestling news You're writing for this and that and the other thing
0: And I have to say, I'm going to just get it out of the way right at the beginning, because it's really important that it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that we wouldn't be doing this right now if it was not for the efforts of the great Brian Last, the other Brian of Arcadian Vanguard, as I like to say, who made this possible and made sure that you were able to carve time out of your very, very busy day, mostly of talking to Brian, to talk to me.
1: Okay, now we got last out of the way. That's a paid promotional <laughs> announcement. Yeah. Just Ladies and like gentlemen, know. Brian Last actually told me now make sure that Solomon puts me over for setting this up. See, I wasn't gonna pull the curtain back, but you know. So you're you're getting a you're getting a cheesecake for the holidays as a result of that promotional announcement. But I'm I'm very happy to be here, but I have a feeling that will quickly change as we get into whatever conversation that you're gonna lead us into. Well, one
0: thing I'll get out of the way right off the bat, and hopefully this puts you at ease is I promise to you right now that we will not be talking about AEW and we will not be probably not be talking about any wrestling from the past 20 years. That sounds good to me. Good. I thought you might feel that way. And I know, you know, like I said at the beginning, you have been podcasting for a long time, in various different forms, and you and Brian have been doing this for years and you have been have talked so much about your career and your fandom and just even being a wrestling fan and growing growing up and all that that you've covered so much ground. I'm going to do my very best to ask you the kind of questions and talk about the kind of things that maybe only I would think of, so that you're not just talking about the same old shit that you always do.
1: Well, uh, that that's a, can be a double edged sword also because knowing you, some of the Strange and bizarre questions you might be able to ask, but we'll we'll see what we can do to feel these. Sure. And and you know, there
0: are probably people that no matter what you decide to talk about, there's gonna be people that wish that you'd brought up something else, but this is my show <laughs> and I have my background. So I'm gonna talk about what I want to talk about. And so So let's
1: start with my colonoscopy. So oh I went God. there that when no, I'm I'm just I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> are you sure? I mean, you know I'm we,
1: sorry, Brian. You just gotta you gotta roll with
0: this. Just keep going. Power through me. All right. Yeah. Well. I. Yeah. I'll try my best. I'll do my very best. And like I a have bad say, case of constipation, It's power yeah, through me. Boy, there's been. We're only five minutes in, and we're talking about shit constantly. You got to stay away from the cheese whiz. I found out as you get older. Oh. Okay. All right. I'll. I'll. I'll do my best with that. I'm. I'm about uh, 15 years behind you, so that's good to know. Anyway, I want to talk about the fact that. <laughs> You, were, we, you worked for a company that I also worked for, and I've had very little time ever, really, to talk to you about this. So the only time, really, that we ever crossed paths, as I think I've told you before, was very briefly at the first, or rather the last, Brian Pillman Memorial Show that yes. Les Thatcher put on. And you were there, I believe Stacy was there, and I was sent by the office to sort of cover it and get as many interviews as I can, and... I believe that we. I briefly interviewed you on that day, which I wouldn't blame you for not remembering because I have to be honest and say that I don't even know if I remember it, but I have, a, <laughs> <laughs> I have a
1: tape to prove it, and it has your name on it. So apparently we did speak once We before. did. We did have some kind of interaction, but there were all kinds of things going on that night. I was asked by Les Thatcher to watch a couple of people that night that, to make sure they didn't wander to the ring and I, they, their names will go unspoken, but all, all kinds of things went on over there. And I'll never forget that that night we got a match between
0: two gentlemen named Randy Orton and John Cena, which turned out to be, you know, kind of future WrestleMania main event level match. And here we are seeing these two guys at the very, very, very beginning of their respective careers.
1: Well, we worked with with Les quite a bit on that since OVW was only 90 miles down the road from Cincinnati here in Louisville. So uh, at various points, a lot of the top guys at OVW worked on the Pillman Memorials and on some of uh, Les's regular shows, the HWA Heartland Wrestling Association.
0: Right. And now, actually, which reminds me, at the time that I was working for the company, which would be 2000 to 2007... You, at that point, were already down in OVW. So we. I never had the opportunity to kind of run into you in the office. But it never fails to amuse me as I constantly try—well, not constantly, but, you know, often— try to imagine how—what it would have been like for you to coexist in a place like that. I just—what—I <laughs> can't—don't I, I, take this the wrong way, but I cannot imagine how that even— Logistically worked And I know that there were times Where probably you couldn't imagine how either
1: There were a lot of adjustments To my schedule that I made And a lot of adjustments to my temperament That I made to last in that office As long as I did In the actual office itself We're not talking about the the whole job The whole shebang We're talking about Jim, me, Jim Cornette Going to Titan Tower Four days a week He The trip to Vince's on Wednesday was farther in that miserable traffic and that Merritt Parkway and I-95 and all that bullshit, bumper to bumper, 30 fucking eight miles, took me sometimes over two hours. But the trip to Vince's house, as long and trying as it was and as long as trying as the day was, at least we weren't sitting in that fucking office. And he was still
0: living. Oh, sorry. Go on.
1: Well, no, it, yeah, he was still living in. I don't know. He's now he's got a penthouse or an outhouse or whatever. Yeah. But he was over there at the place uh, down the road from Ron Howard that he had spinach. Yeah, it, yeah. it was a
0: gated community, right? That he looked. Yes, met.
1: it was. Yeah. it was very. There were gates all over the place, and they oh. looked at me sideways when I came in every time. I actually got a, a
0: taste of that universe very briefly because my my wife worked for a catering company, and they. Had to cater. I'm not making this up. This this feels like a, a scene from Caddyshack or something. But they they catered a polo tournament in Greenwich, um, <laughs> and I went with her just for the heck of it to mix around with these people. And you know, I felt like Rodney Dangerfield. And it was within. It was actually within that community where where Vince lived at the time, Hur- Hurlingham Road or something like that, right?
1: And, and yeah, Faversham. Um. <laughs> Right. or whatever there's it, an old Beverly Hillbillies episode. But when you would go down the road and then Vince's neighborhood you you turn left and there's the gate with the guard and everything. Right. And then you go through and down the road is Vince's house. At the time I still had my old beat up <laughs> Toyota Camry. And I'd had that thing in, in, uh, Smoky mountain and fuck it. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, I first went, I first went there with the old Ford Taurus that we did the angle with the Fantastics in, where they caved my back windshield in with a lead pipe while me and Tom and uh, Stan Lane were in the front seat. But anyway, they would look at me like, well, cause there's hubcaps missing. I didn't give a <laughs> shit though. Those roads up there. Like I'm going to spruce my car up to go to that hell hole. But anyway, yeah. you asked about the office. Yes. I, and I, at first, I've told this story. Bruce and I were supposed to be the creative team working under Vince, and we would work at Bruce's house Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and then go to Vince's house on Wednesday and have the writing day. I was, That's why I moved next to Bruce instead of next to the office, right? Even though you couldn't afford to be next to the office. So <laughs> then, oh, fuck. fuck. <laughs> I had to get 30 miles from the office to find a house to rent under $2,000 a month in 1996.
0: Yeah, I, I was living about, <clears throat> excuse me, when I when I came to work there originally, I was still living in Brooklyn, and then I moved out to Connecticut, and I in, initially moved to a town called Fairfield, which is like three yes. or four, yeah. That it's was a, right next to where Bruce was in Monroe. Oh, okay, yeah, but that, right? that it's about, it is, yeah, it's about three or four towns down the road from Stamford, like, like large towns. Yeah. And it was about as close again, like you said, as I could get in my price range. And even that was sort of wishful thinking, even
1: that. But the point is I am supposed to be, and I'm, I'm three, four miles away from Bruce's house. Right. So as soon as we, and all that we did was we would go and we would play with his dog and we'd go eat at the Italian place, you know, down the road from his house. And, and we'd kick around ideas, but I'm, are we supposed to write TV? And he'd smarten me up that no, we can't write TV until Vince tells us what to write. I said, and why are we supposed to be here writing TV? He said, we're here working. Don't rock. Said, we're the playing boat, with here. your fucking dog. He said, but <laughs> we're here. If they call from the office, we're working. There you go. So I'm like, what the fuck? I have to spend four days a week with Bruce Pritchard playing with his dog in order to goddamn go and write TV one day a week. So just to, at least I didn't have to drive to Stanford, go to the office. And just yep. when we got that going on, that's when JJ quit. He'd finally been able to sell his house and get out of there. And he <laughs> walked in and quit and they put Bruce in his job. And then I had to go to the office every day. Cause that's where Bruce was. I'm like, fuck
0: Newman. So I wasn't sure if you worked at the TV studios, but you had an actual. For people that don't know, and I think you guys have talked about this, the TV studio, and uh, well, now it's different. Now they have this giant campus they're all moving into. But for the longest time, you had the corporate building, which is the Titan Tower that everybody knows, and you could see World it from my East Main Street. There you go. And uh, they had the the TV studio, which is 120 Hamilton Avenue, which I think they had occupied even longer than Titan Tower. Yeah. And I, so you had an office in the actual corporate Titan tower itself. Yes.
1: Yeah. I'm assuming I, I, fourth liked, floor. I liked going to the studio. I liked all the people working at the studio, except for Kevin Dunn. And I liked, you know, the TV equipment and it's TV and you know that I'm interested in that. Right. And we're going to, we're doing voiceovers. I did the syndicated TV. B and Jr did various incarnations of WWF superstars or their syndicated programs and I broke Shane McMahon in and Michael Cole in and Michael and I did the first SmackDown when it was a, a pilot, but I liked the studio, but you know, there wasn't anything for me to do all day there. There wasn't anything for me to do all fucking day at the goddamn office either. And that's the thing. I could do that shit. And I'm talking to fucking third party promoters and I'm chasing down the, I'm booking the, the guys that are, You know, they're not booked much on the third parties, and I'm going to write at various points, or I'm doing the commentary or whatever, but there's never any need for me to sit in a fucking office. They gave me, remember at the fourth floor, if you're going right past, I was right across Diagonal from Finkel. Were you there when Finkel had the office there? Yes, and if I remember right, wasn't his office directly across from Vince's? Well, no, no, because you got you got Finkel. Maybe they moved him. And you got me and you got um JR had the kind of big corner office there. And then you went around the corner and that's where you went into Best Zaz's office and then Vince's.
0: Right. I remember there was sort of like this this suite, or I don't know what you'd call it, where uh you had like Vince's office was on one side, Linda's was on the other side, and in between there was this hallway. And yes, you, co- you couldn't really access it from the outside You'd go in and there would be a whole bunch of
1: offices off that hallway You know, I bet they added doors to keep people from wandering around over there But, but, but no, basically in one so. hallway, JR had the office with a bunch of windows He had all his football trophies on the, on the, the ledge there Or the windowsill But Finkel was over at a hall with me, and then I was was an inside cubicle where I didn't have a window or anything. When they (laughs) showed me the office, they opened the door, and there was a desk and a chair. And behind the door was a framed, like, 24 by 36 giant enlargement of vents in the old Tuesday night Titan days, making a, you know, pulling a face, as they say over across the pond. As is in his announcer suit. And I said, when I leave here, I'm taking that with me. And when I did, I did. It's hanging in my office right now here as I sit here. That is. Great. So I brought in a fucking table lamp. Bruce wanted me to keep the lights turned on Is these fucking fluorescent lights. I brought in a table lamp for nice lighting. I used the phone. I never used the computer. I didn't send fucking emails and many people didn't in 1997. True. And, um, and I would sit in there and twiddle my thumbs until we need, either needed to do something or I ended up starting to get there a little bit later and leave a little bit earlier. I'd say I'm going by the TV studio. Then I'd go over there and fucking bullshit for a little while and he'd go home early and beat the traffic. But my <laughs> and then finally, Jr. realized why is he showing up in here? What the fuck? He's a corny work from home. Fine. But, and you were living in Stanford though at the time. Oh no, not Stanford. Well, no, in in uh, I have I was in Huntington. Oh boy, that's which yeah. Was that's next farm. to Monroe and fucking
0: whatever Huntington. Okay, I currently live in Trumbull, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the town where your least favorite. Uh, well, that could fit a lot of people. I don't know what <laughs> one of your very least
1: favorite WWF. The for the former and... editor of the WWF yes. magazine, correct? Yes, and and as may he lived behind the mall, didn't he? Y- yes, actually, yes, yes. and I I'm... a little, a little hovel. I was surprised that he let his <laughs> wife live in conditions like that. I would have been oh. ashamed as the family provider if, if I'd had to have my wife and children living in such a a shed behind I, a mall. Well, I, I
0: didn't. I was just at that mall earlier today doing some last minute Christmas shopping. Um, and I was just on the Merritt Parkway this morning, so this is all really hitting home. I can't
1: imagine the neighborhood has deteriorated very much because it looked pretty bad to begin with.
0: Yeah, that's kind
1: of the I like where, where he trouble. where he lived. Uh, we're talking about Vince Russo, ladies and gentlemen. Where go. he where he lived, you could tell when you got into his neighborhood. You'd look in the backyard, you'd see toilet paper hanging on a line to dry. <laughs> well. As a matter of fact, a tornado went through there one year, caused six million dollars worth of improvements. That's
0: the that's the part of Trumbull that that you kind of well you don't want to live in if you're going to live in trouble. I I like it here but I live kind of on the other side of the town. Um but but I know So I, you're
1: saying he was on the wrong side of the
0: track. Yeah, quite literally actually. But you know, I I get to listen to you week after week on on a fairly consistent basis trashing the state that I live in and the part of the country that I live in, and in general, in broad sweeping terms, so it's at least um, fun to kind of get some of the reasons why that is the case. And I'm not going to argue with you about the traffic. It is. I, I horrific. like many
1: many of the people there. I'm not I'm not saying I'm I have many many fans, many cult of Cornette members there, but the traffic is ridiculous. The prices, the prices, the prices, the prices or the crises or the prices. The prices, even in the 30 years ago, were ridiculous. The, the uh, overall general uh, difficulty of getting anything, getting anywhere, getting anything you need and getting back fucking home. It's very difficult there. The standard of living is tough. I mean,
0: even it's tougher even here than it, than it was in New York city where, where I grew up. It's just, it's tough to be a homeowner. It's just tough in general. But so the reason that I brought up, I'm bringing up all the WWE stuff too, is that it's fascinating to me because, you know, you're you're somebody who, as we all know, you've always been, you've always been in love with the wrestling business and you were a fan when you were a child and you were, you followed it all these years and very passionate about it. And I, I always found that, I always wondered what it, what it was like to. You're working in a place where, look, we all know that the wrestling culture of the North and South couldn't be more different, or even the Midwest. What was it like working for a place where, yes, it's the business that you love, but it's a completely different version of it or a completely different approach to it?
1: What was that like for you? Well, it started out as a situation where the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. When when I was in WCW or actually more when I was in Crockett we didn't have a lot of room to brag in WCW those first couple of years but when I was working for Crockett we could take pride that we were doing professional wrestling Vince was doing sports entertainment even though he had some fabulous talent it didn't have the the edge that he didn't want the edge or the believability or the violence or the whatever the case and uh, Then with the way that WCW not only treated me and the Midnight Express a couple of years that we were there after they took over, but then also the, 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 the product. And then when Watts came in and we initially contacted or got in contact and, and worked out some deals, we thought, Oh, I said, okay. Maybe they're going to make this thing work after all this time. Herd is gone. He was the main sticking point. Dusty had asked me to come back when Herd was still there. I said, no, because Herd was still there. Um, Heard was gone. Watts is in charge. Maybe they'll make something out of this thing. And we go to the lengths of doing the co-promotion that we did with the rock roll and heavily bodies, Bob Armstrong, myself, and Watts interacting on camera. And made a variety of other plans, and then boom, he's gone. I said, I cannot trust this company, these people. I could, It's not that I can't trust Dusty Rhodes or Bill Watts or any of these individuals. I can't trust this company. And at the same point, the opportunity came to work with Vince later on that year, 1993. And I said, All right, I'm going to get Smoky Mountain Wrestling as much attention, as much publicity as I can. And also, to be honest, make a few extra dollars from the WWF so I can afford to keep running Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And God, it was... I mean, you know, I had to suffer through the wrestling clowns and the fucking... And Bruce had drunk the Kool-Aid. A protege of Paul Bosch had, you Mm. know, had drunk the Kool-Aid about the whole... Yes, there's entertainment in it. But it, there's, there's also a balance somewhat. So, but, fortunately, you know, he still had, Vince still had the top athletes at the top. Once he got his footing back after that initial 95-year fiasco, you had Shawn Michaels, you had Vader, you had uh, Bret Hart, you had The Undertaker, you had, you know, top-level talent. And so, while I had to suffer through the tomfoolery compared to modern-day wrestling, the 90s WWF tomfoolery was somewhat the periphery, and the top guys, it was still... It was a lot more closer to wrestling than then we gave it credit for at the time now we've seen what the alternative is now that i'm reflecting on this as i think but you see where i'm going with it
0: oh yeah and and so- i think about that a lot too even some of the worst stuff that both major companies were doing in the 90s in the mid 90s and things i i now i'll look back on it nostalgically oh yes remember those great days of uh, yes
1: uh, <laughs> you know of the shockmaster wow well, can we yeah. can we go back to that you know but I it's mean, so the that's shot. the thing. And, you know, I had a good relationship with Bruce at the time and, and Jim Ross and, and I had been friends forever, worked together and Vince was accepting of Smoky Mountain and, you know, put me at a great spot. So I couldn't complain. And then finally, when I moved up there full time, you know, he, yeah, well, you know, Vince, he treats you better when you're a house guest than he does when you live there. So true. But Yes. But still, you know, he was very good to me on a variety of levels. It was just the, you know, not only trying to adapt to what he believed wrestling was, but also trying to adapt to, as we've all talked about, the way that he thought you should do it, which was over and over and over again. Nothing is ever done till it's put on tape. He can't leave anything alone. He's got to polish the goddamn polish. And it's endless. And, yeah, that, and that wore on me more than anything else. Yeah, and, and you know, in, in doing the
0: book I've been doing on Gorilla Monsoon, I've been learning a lot of how his dad was the complete opposite. His dad was a very light touch. He would just sort of show up at the garden and let everybody know who was going over who. And, and I trust you guys to do it and, and talk to Gorilla and you work it out. And then he just barricaded himself in his office <laughs> and just kayfabe, some newspaper writer or another, you know, while the show was going on pretty much was, was a hands-off kind of a guy. He just put the pieces in motion and then he let them go. And, and obviously Vincent K couldn't be more different than
1: that. See, that's a, I'm, I'm not like either one of those people in that unlike Vince senior I've got to, you know me, I'm a control freak or when I'm in a creative position or booking or whatever, I've got to have everything down. I've got to have all the information ready to be conveyed to whoever knows it, right? So I don't mind doing paperwork. I always have. But at the same time, I never want to do anything twice. Whenever somebody sees something of mine publicly (laughs) that I would hand to anybody to say, here's what we're doing. It's been goddamn gone over and beat up in my head a million times. Right. And I had to learn, you can't do that because you're wasting your time because Vince will take everything you hand him and pull one sentence out of it and change the rest, of the whole goddamn thing. And it drove me crazy, not ever being able to just sit down and do something and have it done, whether it be a format or jotting down a finish, here's what we'll do or whatever the case. I was not used to doing things more than once because I went through such a goddamn procedure to do them the first time, and that drove me crazy. I call it the ceremonial turning in of the papers. You hand him the papers in his hand. He says, "Thank you, my son." Crumples them up and throws them over his shoulder. See, we we caught a little taste of that in the
0: publications department, partly because, uh, well, we worked for Shane. And Shane, at the time I was there, he was a very nice guy, but he was also beholden to his dad. And so a lot of it would be Shane as the proxy for Vince. And so we would – I remember sometimes doing 40 – I'm not even kidding, 40 different, maybe 50 different mock-ups of a magazine cover, of just the cover. And, wow, we would have the – we called it the map. We would put all the pages of the magazine up on the wall in layout form and he would just come in and start tearing them down off the wall. It got to the point where we started hiding stories from him. We, we would just <laughs> hope we would hope that he was so busy – sorry, Shane, if you hear this – that he wouldn't notice or he was just too preoccupied. We, we'd try and sneak stories in under the radar because we just knew he was going to make a lot of needless changes and things that would in the end not really be that substantial but would create so much more work. And so we we got a little bit of that, and we definitely – we were brought more into the orbit of Vince than we ever really needed to be, partly because we worked for Shane. And one story that I've 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 talked about here and there, but it speaks to the thing that you just said about how he would always treat you better if you're a house guest than if you're living there. I did this very long interview with him where I was in his limo with him and Shane made this possible. And I was riding with him on that horrendous I-95 traffic. So we were in the car for hours. And I got to talk to him about, you know, ask him every question I had, ran out of questions, just started talking to him about everything and just family and just small talk. We get back to the photo studio there at Tracks, and we're doing a whole photo shoot of just me and him. And I'm thinking, why in the world are we doing this? And I realized at a certain point, I, I can't prove this, but I really believe that he did not know that I worked for him at that time. <laughs> I think. I think that he thought I was from Sports Illustrated or something like that or some type of high profile outside thing. And I made the decision not to disabuse him of that notion because it was (laughs) to my benefit if he thought I was, you know, not one of his employees, because then he would probably not treat me as nicely.
1: Oh, God. You know, I should have tried that. Well, I should have just farther, showed up, and said, oh, Vince, I'm um, here from an independent news organization." But hey, you know, you mentioned this earlier. Did you ever come to OVW? I um,
0: no. I, I'm trying to think. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> the closest I got, I think, was that Pillman show, and I would interview people that were training there a lot. Sometimes by phone, they would want me. Right, like right. I remember one that comes to my mind is Victoria who I don't think she was using that name in OVW, but she was Lisa Marie. No, it
1: was, she was still Victoria. Yes.
0: Was she? Okay. Yes. And, uh, they had wanted me to do something. They hadn't put her on TV yet, but they were planning to. And so they wanted me to reach out to her. They were going to do a story in the magazine and all these things. And so things like that would happen where I'd be talking to people who were there without them actually sending me there. I I remember with that one, um, I sometimes I would open my mouth a little too much on some of the plans that they might have for these people because they would let me in on it. Like <laughs> I, I, you know I don't know if people know this, well you you must know this, but there was talk um with Victoria that they were going to make her kind of the arch enemy of China. They were hoping to groom her to be like China's, you know, nemesis.
1: I remember and- something to that effect because she would physically could Right. Potentially stand up to her. Yes.
0: Now, she didn't know this.
1: And <laughs> I didn't know that she
0: didn't know this. And I brought it up in the interview. I was like, hey, how do you feel about, you know, because this was Raw magazine where we sometimes pulled the curtain back a little bit and different from WWE magazine where it was all very much in, in character. And I or I might have even said this off the record. I said something like, well, are you excited? I, You know, they they want to bring you up to work with China and she said they do and that's when I felt my <laughs> stomach
1: just Well sink. but but here's the thing you know I probably heard it from her <laughs> Yeah because she heard see, it from here, me <laughs> Yeah because see here's the thing and this was they couldn't uh, uh, Jim Ross was the only one that understood what we were doing from the start the rest of them for one reason or another couldn't stand it for their own reasons When I first moved down to Louisville and started the OVW program, we had the first four guys in 1999, just that quick before, because I started here in July and our friend Shitstain was gone in September, October, right? But he had to get a story in an uh, unflattering story about OVW in before he left in the magazine, which then I had to call Jim Ross up and go, what is this fucking idiot? Doing now, he's because it's personal that he hates me because I've fucking showed him up in various ways and times that he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Now he's maligning an official company project where we're supposed to be training talent in the official company magazine. And Jim Ross had to have a talk with him. Uh, then Again, Jr. understood we were running a miniature territory to give guys experience at all levels, preliminary, mid-card, main event, baby face, heel, television, live events, and a training school, the whole thing in miniature, and as long as we did our, as long as we kept our business strong and our word good with who we were advertising in our core market here in Louisville, we were fine, and As J.R. would say about the trainees, if they can't follow your rules, then they can't follow ours. So we made the guys K Fabe and Babyface and Heels couldn't be seen together because it's a small area and people will talk. And we were quite successful as long as we only had to deal with Jim Ross. Hmm. But if there was ever any interaction where we had to send the talent to the main roster or for dark matches or whatever, there was no communication. Bruce was supposed to. They gave Bruce the task of reviewing the OVW television show because he, this was one of the periods of time where he would not do anything. He was on the outs with Stephanie. And so then he would basically review it by praising all the people that Stephanie and Laurinaitis was butting his little mushroom head in at the time. <laughs> Um, that anything that they would like and panning the shit that actually made it look like a wrestling program and one or two lines instead of evaluating the talent and their strengths and their weaknesses and their progress, etc. Uh, so then I I was there six years uh as booker of OVW, and I think they they never sent the writers to the old building we had in southern Indiana. So that was the first three years. Not one TV writer, creative team member ever came down and looked at anybody in the old building. Like for the first three years, we would send the tapes up. And one time we'd been sending a VHS tape to one of the writing team. This was probably around 2000, 2001. That was supposed to get it. And somebody finally called to say, you know what? He, he doesn't work here anymore. He's been gone for about six months. Oh God. Well, I, I so, remember. So um, went, Hold on. The new oh, yeah. building. We move in the new building. Right. And that, cause it was a nice facility. I was, you know, that got Jim Ross came down for the opening and Lauren itis came down and blah, blah. we were doing a two hour primetime special on our local station. And then they said, well, we should send the creative team down. I think maybe the writers from that point on, I was there another three years. They came five times and Stephanie came once. And when Stephanie did come, I made it a point to sit behind her as she watched the guys have the matches and do the promos. And before the start, I would lean up and not in a lengthy way. I'd say this guy's a better baby face. This guy's a better heel. This guy excels in this area. He can talk, but he can't work. Well, he's a great athlete, but his fucking determination is suspect. Whatever little crib notes, So that they could get the experience of everybody. And they did everything differently than anything that we described with whoever that I'd fucking talked about. And, and I've joked before we would, Jim Ross would say, write a list of the one through 20 who should be brought up. And I would, and they bring up 18, 19, and 20.
0: Which I wouldn't it, it be surprised know, if it wasn't done out of spite. I mean, there, there was a lot of that that would happen
1: there. Well, that's that's what I'm saying is you you've in the magazine every once in a while. We got some coverage. You just mentioned you did a few things. But they they made no effort to integrate into the program, which is, is that we were doing for them. And all they did, wanted to do when Laurinaitis took over because it got over with him or got him over with Stephanie. He'd complain about shit. But it, they would do nothing to help her interact or help the talent make the transition. So we could train them all day long if they changed everything about everything that they did and started them from scratch again. What the fuck? Right. I'm, I, that's why the class of 2002, and I'll let you talk on your own show here in a second. That's right. Is so well remembered, not only because it was Brock Lester, Shelton Benjamin, Batista, John Cena, etc., but because that was the last group that Jim Ross was the executive in charge of talent relations and we were left alone with to do as best we could with and then we had excellent talent for the next 3 or 4 years that unfortunately didn't get the time or the placement that they should have because Johnny Ace took over and was apparently as now we we've come to find out more Interested in searching for illegal paralegals
0: Well, I remember Well, what I remember from being on the magazine at that time When all that was going on We had, I can't remember why this was Maybe it was through Kevin Kelly um, Because I know he would sometimes get tapes of
1: people Um, Yes, well, we sent Kevin a lot So somebody up there would know what the fuck was going on Because Kevin actually liked wrestling and would watch it
0: Right. And I remember, I think he was the one that showed us the tapes of Cena when he was the prototype, when he was doing kind of like the Terminator sort of gimmick where he had no, where he had that very monotone delivery and everything. And I remember thinking, we thought a lot of us for years, we kept going, well, where are all these guys? Like, like I started there in early 2000 and I knew people that had been there a year or two before that were on the staff. And they kept going, yeah, you know, cause we keep hearing about them. We would occasionally write about them. Like, like I was saying other people too, we would give these profiles of, Hey, here's, you know, some of the, uh, we called it on the farm. We had a whole, yeah, we had a whole department. You remember that? And, um,
1: and, and by the way, thank you for reminding me of the prototype, the Terminator prototype didn't, I said, uh, the name's fine. You are, but, uh, but, uh, drop the, uh, drop the site. You're not a cyborg. Right, that's what he was doing at first. And it, and it excelled for him, apparently, when he started talking, but go ahead. It worked out. Yeah, it kind of did. But we, uh,
0: but there were years there where it was almost like a running gag, like, where the hell are the developmental guys? And um, then all of a sudden, 2002 happened, and as everybody knows, we we started, we got these amazing talents, and then it sort of felt like the floodgates open. I mean, for better or worse, some, some made it, some didn't, but that's when we finally started seeing some people get through, but it, it really did feel like, um, they were spinning their wheels down there for a while.
1: Well, you know, and again, (sighs) there was the effort I've I've joked about this, but it's true. Lauren itis liked Sean O'Hare and Mark Jindrak because they were in WCW with him. And they had the big bodies that Vince likes. And as Stephanie would say, Oh, look at those guys. And (laughs) the problem was they, they weren't any good. And, or in Sean O'Hare's case, we knew he was going to be a problem child and we'd tell him and they would, didn't want to listen. But meanwhile, the guys that, that could have filled very important positions, we didn't, you know, they didn't turn down any WrestleMania main eventers, but very important positions being good workers, good employees good people to have on the card they would clown them up or bury them until they just quit the business i mean the entire spirit squad except for ziggler quit the business for fucking years some of them permanently
0: we couldn't believe when they brought batista in as the as the deacon Deacon oh and put the box
1: around his navel. i'm watching TV. what the fuck is going on here this guy is he needs to main event against the Undertaker, not carry a fucking collection box.
0: Right, which he eventually did, but
1: but yes, again- but it it might not have been that way. But if it had stunk any more at the start, they could have buried it. That's the point I was making: is they we gave them talent, not to say they had to keep every name or every gimmick, but we gave them talent. That was good at the things they had been doing, which were more natural to themselves. And then they were oh, don't do this. Carry this box around your neck or paint yourself this color. Or you're now a fucking male cheerleader. What? And and we knew Johnny Jeter was my pussy (laughs) magnet. Johnny Jeter was the next Chris Jericho in the ring. The thrill seeker and my pussy magnet, twenty-one years old with long blonde hair, and they made him a male cheerleader with green and white pom poms.
0: Yeah, and, you and and because,
1: because that sabotage.
0: Well, we knew who these people were, like I said, and we knew we had seen tapes of them, and so therefore, when they would pop up on the TV, we would go, "Why? Why are they doing that with with these people? Why?" Why are they giving Matt Morgan a stutter? How how in the world is that going to help this guy get over? I'm the guy that stutters. Great. I really want to see that you know and we cuz i knew i knew matt well because matt was from fairfield from
1: fairfield yeah and
0: matt was actually discovered here by by some guys that i know here at the office that saw him i think he was bouncing at a bar in fairfield or somewhere thereabouts and he was working for a limo service and things and that was uh, they might he might have even been driving some of the talent around and they took a look at him and said oh my god we need to introduce you to some people so you know we were we were rooting for him and he was a good example. We were just like, and did I was you see there.
1: The, did you see the OVW TVs of Matt Morgan? Yes, where he was the response that he got, the blueprint. Either right, the as blueprint. a baby face, he was as the top baby face, and then we switched him heel because they wanted to see him heel, and he got a ton of heat.
0: We and then they told me it.
1: they said put a mask on him. I said oh. what? Well, we wanted to improve his body language. Somehow, somebody started a thing. Okay. where if you put a mask on a guy, it will improve his body language, which is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard in my fucking life. And I said, okay, oh, and I figured out a way to put a, a mask on him. And then that pretty much killed him with the OVW crowd. Cause now they're confused. And then they bring him up there, a seven foot tall, 325 pound bodybuilder that can drop kick with a fucking 4.0 grade average or whatever, and can cut a promo. And they gave him a stutter and we loved the blueprint thing in fact we jumped the gun and
0: we got in trouble for it i don't know if you ever saw this but we did a full-fledged feature on him cuz he was our friend you know and yeah. we we called it the blueprint and the whole thing the layout looked like um you know like a blueprint diagram of something yeah. and all this and they killed us for that they were just like you're you're getting ahead of us you know we dictate the storylines you guys don't you're supposed to follow our lead don't don't put over who we don't want you to put yeah, over. Yeah, because that's all another kind of one thing.
1: of Cornet's gimmicks that might work. We got to cut that shit off.
0: They well, you know, I mean, yeah, I think that was going on. <laughs> I, I really, I said to you before we started, and I'll say it again, that I, I don't think Stephanie was ever going to become the president of your fan club. That was definitely the impression that I got. And again, I was, <laughs> I wasn't fully plugged in, but I was in enough meetings, I, I against my will. To definitely get the sense that um, she, and I guess maybe by extension Triple H, because he was sort of like unofficially booking <laughs> in a way. Well, yeah, and, I, uh, and we're not your biggest
1: fans. And I don't know, I don't know wh- from which came first, the chicken or the egg, so to speak. And a Triple H knew what I thought about his fucking friend Sean from all that DX nonsense when they were the scourge of the creative team's existence. He wasn't, but he was in the group that was, and I didn't much care for the way that Nash and Hall conducted themselves while we were there, and I had to put up with that either. That led to, or contributed to a lot of headaches about being in Connecticut was the goddamn headaches we had to go through with those prima donna fucking assholes. However, um, I'm sure that Stephanie, after a period of time, here's the thing, when I was working up there, Stephanie had come in and started interning in the TV studio. Okay, fine, and we've never had, to this day, we have never had a crossword or an ill conversation between us. We've never sat down and spoken for an hour at a time, but she was doing the intern thing. Then I come to Louisville, and a couple of years later, hello, Stephanie's in charge of creative. What? And I'm sorry, but it's the same thing as the... You know who probably knows the least about the oil business? The daughter or son of the chairman of Exxon. Mm -hmm. Because you think when they go to work, all the employees say, yeah, well, this ought to be done and that ought to be done. But your old man's doing a shitty job or whatever. Right. And then when they started massacring our talent with bad gimmicks, I was not shy about telling the talent. When their gimmicks were stupid or they were burying them, or this t- television program just in general was insulting to wrestling because that's a period of time. Remember the necrophilia, the triple H mm-hmm. and the coffin, whatever the fuck. That's when I I think I stopped watching SmackDown over that one. I did too. But <laughs> but at the same time, you know, if Stephanie had anything to say to me, I never heard it because we have never to this day ever spoken on the telephone. And again, we're training the developmental talent that they have signed up. Jim Ross took an interest and Kevin Kelly took an interest and Tom Pritchard took an interest. All the wrestling people took an interest, but Stephanie and her writing crew, as I said, Stephanie showed up once. I never spoke to her on the telephone. The writers would come maybe once a year and I'd sit there and it would do. I I told Danny Davis, I said, I either with the writing team, I either need five minutes or five years because anything in between ain't going to do either side any good. It's just going to piss us off. I either need, need to say, hi, you guys. How are you? Glad to have you here. Try the burgoo at Mark's feed store. Or you guys need to sit down and follow me around for five fucking years. So you'll understand the wrestling business.
0: Well, the, the rumor that I would hear and, the reality of things don't really kind of disprove this but of, of pe- people they were getting from you but the the rumor was that her maybe this was coming from her i don't know was the idea that what they needed and you hear you hear this even in the NXT era what they needed the type of talent and the way that they needed to get over was not what they were getting. That that the idea was, oh, that's Cornette. He's he's teaching people how to get over as if it was 1986 in in uh, in North Carolina, and we need them to get over in 2003 in WWE, and it's not the same thing.
1: Well, and- uh, well, let me ask you this. Besides the fact the guys in 1986 were over more than the guys in 19 fucking or 2003 because the crowds were bigger. What's the difference? If you know how to get over, you know how to get over. It's not a, and I don't think there was a problem with the guys that they took and didn't change everything about getting over. Cause we, cause we populated their roster for 10 years and a couple of the guys, Orton and Cena, have just been two of their biggest stars today. Mm-hmm. And that's the point is that they weren't, they weren't smart enough to the wrestling business to understand that you continue to have these talents evolve. I'm not saying they had to keep the same name or even the same gimmick, just the same flavor, be true to the individual. You couldn't take Ric Flair after he'd been training for six months and take him to Carolina instead of the nature boy. You decide to make him, Fucking Dean Douglas, a school teacher, a college fucking professor. Oh, that'll work with Ric Flair. If he did go to any of the classes in college, he doesn't remember them. That's what I'm saying. They changed everybody because they wanted this. Stephanie had this idea of following in Vince's footsteps by giving everybody a preposterous gimmick or just a gimmick that they owned without regard for whether the talent could perform it or not. What we were doing in a wrestling school was, number one, we're teaching the guys not only how to work, how to do the moves and do them safely and protect themselves and other people, but also the psychology of when to do them, to get over with a live audience. We are also teaching them promos on television and basically live television because there wasn't a lot of post-production. We'd do pre-tapes that would be inserted, but if you were in the ring in front of the people, you had one chance, just like it was live. And teaching them how to hit their time cues on their finishes or on their interviews. And teaching them how to go out on live events, both small and large. We had shows. <laughs> One show we, we drew 21 people. And we also had shows in the Louisville Gardens that drew 5,000. And everything in between. And you teach them how to feed off the crowd and call the match on the fly. And have their personalities come out and jazz them up a little bit and give them uh, some semblance of an education on how to accentuate their strong personality points and their strong characteristics and minimize the weak ones that don't get over with people or doesn't fit what they're trying to portray. And then once they've got that basic education and they kind of have something that's worked for them somehow on a local basis then it's the job of these fucking rocket scientists and astrophysicists up there, Stephanie McMahon, who couldn't book a fart after a dinner at Taco Bell when it comes to pro wrestling, to fucking magnify that and get them over further on national television by pushing them and making people believe that there's something important about them. And therein lies the fucking problem. It sounds I so needed simple. five years with Stephanie too. Yeah. Well, you know, she also didn't last there forever,
0: as we now saw and see. And and she also by the well, time... Well, but I'm
1: not saying that Stephanie shouldn't. She's a college graduate she's a she was an entertaining television performer.
0: Right, but maybe being um, the head of TV creative head of wasn't fucking the best.
1: Booking? Idea. Right. Let's do something on a national television. It's like Tony Khan. Let's do something you've never done before on national television. And believe it or not, I I have other things that I
0: wanted to kind of pick your brain about besides working for WWE, which which I'm sure um, is is a topic that um, you'd be happy to move off of if possible.
1: We can uh, we can go anywhere you want to go. I'll follow you. Well, there's a
0: couple of things while I have you here. This is I really. This is very precious time, and I want to make the most of it. But a couple – I'm always thinking to myself, what are the things that I would ask you? What did you uh, – as
1: Heenan would say, did you get a bad diagnosis? What are you talking about here <laughs> now?
0: Well, no, because Brian gets to talk to you about whatever he feels like every week for multiple hours, and I, I only have this hour, so I'm trying to make <laughs> the most of it. One, what I wanted to ask you about is I was joking at the beginning of the show about you being a, a manager of some note. Uh, most people would, would put you on the very short list – of, of the greatest that there ever were, especially when it comes to talking, talking is the thing that you're most known for. I mean, among the best manager talkers that there were, I mean, people like to me that come to mind, Ernie Roth, Paul Heyman, um, you are, you're in that rarefied air. I think I feel confident in saying you are the greatest wrestling, talking Gentile manager that has ever lived. Um, I can say that, but what I, what I'm, talking about here is obviously people are going to say Solomon is buttering up Cornette here, but I was about to say, where is this headed? I'll tell you where it's headed. How much do you need? I I know that uh, as somebody who's a writer and who does some public speaking, I know it's not easy to, and for some people it comes very easy to speak extemporaneously and to come up with witticisms and, and quick retorts and to be able to speak in such a way as you do Uh, What I've always wanted to ask you is at what point do you realize in your young life that you have, which is now in the far distant past, but at which point do you realize that you have some type of a gift or talent here? And you don't quite know what you're going to use it for, but did you have an experience like that of coming to that realization of, wow, I could really talk my ass off?
1: I think about probably two months after I got in the wrestling business. So you didn't even know when you first got in. Oh, fuck no. As a matter of fact, the, the first week that I was on television, I forgot to figure out how the fuck I was going to talk at all. Because here's here's the thing. Jerry Jarrett, I've told the story and it, you know, on my podcast many times. I'll try to abbreviate it here. But Jarrett came to me and said, do you want to be a manager? Because <laughs> he said, as... One thing I did was I did imitations of Terry Funk or of handsome Jimmy Valiant in the back or fucking around or whatever. I could do everybody's promo. I could do a lot of people's promo. Just I didn't have a promo for me, right? Because I never thought I'd need one. Well, when Jared asked me if I wanted to be a manager, he said, if you get as much heat with people as you get with the boys, they'll kill you, right? Right. And so I show up at TV the first day and his story is somewhat of the, the old playboy Gary Hart deal was he came from a rich family and he was a playboy. Well, I couldn't carry off the playboy part, but since the fans here in this territory had seen me as a photographer, since I was 14, I couldn't get a driver's license. My mom drove me to the matches and as she sold uh, pictures at the gimmick table in Louisville and Evansville and Lexington. So Jared said, you're a rich kid. Your rich mother is now buying your way into wrestling. And you want to sign up Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and whatever. He gave me the premise. And I was supposed to go out and say it to Lance Russell. And then I was about to go out there. I said, wait a minute, how do I fucking talk? I've talked as everybody else. I've done promos as everybody else, but not me. And it was rotten. Cause I was just, I was bland and I was a bland, generic fucking white boy. Right. And then, but at least I've, I was scared to death. I was so tight. My asshole was clenched. You could have shoved a lump of coal up and got a 10 carat diamond out of it. But then that was only live in Memphis the next week to go on the tape. They set me at the desk and I talked to Lance to kind of reiterate the things I'd said before, while a match was going on between Bill Dundee and Bobby Eaton, as a matter of fact. And without the camera on me and just being able to talk to Lance, it was a little more relaxing, and I did a better job of the imparting the same information. And then for a few weeks, I was just the babyfaces would make fun of me as being a clueless little rich fucking putz. And then finally they pissed me off where I could come out and have somewhat of a heelish demeanor, signing the heels to get even with the babyfaces for humiliating me. And then I could have a little edge Why, Jerry Lawler. You dragged my family name through the mud. How dare you? That type of thing. And then after about a couple months, the guy started saying, you know what? Cause I was already, you know, not great, but I was better than some fucking, some of the underneath talent was, had been in business a couple years trying to cut promos. Right. And once you get, some level of confidence that you're doing well, or at least competing within the middle of the pack of the field that you're in, then you, then you can try a little more and you get a little more relaxed about it. That it's comfort. That's what I always talk about when you see new talent on any of the televisions and they're so monotone and robotic because they've memorized this script that they've been given and they're scared to not say it right. And it just blah, We had no script. We were given a premise and we had to extrapolate. So, but if you could do that, you could put more feeling into it because you weren't worried about saying what you'd memorized, but you still had to get the details out. But I'd watched wrestling at such a close level for so long. And before that, I was a child of the sixties and I was a television fanatic and I was a TV guide subscriber when I was nine years old. But whether it performances, whether I I belong to the movie book club, I still have books that I bought in the early 70s on Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, the silent comedians for physical business. And Abbott and Costello are the great radio comedians or for, you know, snappy patter. I watched the Dick Van Dyke show. There's Maury Amsterdam, the human joke machine, Don Rickles, the master of the insult. You know, Johnny Carson's monologue, I take these things and, you know, you're not trying to be any one of them specifically, but you're trying to do the shit that they all do. Can you tell a story like Jack Benny, crack a joke like Bob Hope, you know, take a pratfall like Buster Keaton, all this kind of registered. And, you know, it, it, it came out when I had a platform to use it. That I kind of innately, when I was a kid, understood what these comedians, storytellers, performers, people who spoke extemporaneously for any re- announcers, even news announcers, you know, you do that flavor of shit when it's called for that's, and that all came out.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it, it really needs to be reiterated. I've seen other people say this and it probably, they may have gotten it from you, but and. and uh, And I know as somebody who's into a lot of old movies and old television that there's a lot to be learned by wrestlers and wrestling personalities from early, especially early movie comedians and actors, you know, before the kind of sort of. Toned down, mumbling, method
1: acting style. Well, also uh, before post-production.
0: Right. They, but they were t-
1: Jackie Gleason would have been one of the great pro wrestling personalities of all time. Exactly. And they, they were playing,
0: and you mentioned Aban and Costello and Laurel and Hardy. They were playing very broadly. You know, they were playing for the cheap seats in a way. I mean, they wanted everything to register. So you knew by looking at their face, every emotion, every thought that they had. Um, you know, subtlety was not Jackie Gleason's, uh, yeah. strong suit, what he was well, known and, for. And
1: also he wouldn't rehearse Yeah, because he, he just, he wanted to do it and just, and do it, do it. Fuck it. We'll do it live. And that's, and he had the different, the range of emotions and the ability to cut a promo on, you know, on command and the great one, he could do anything, but it was anybody who could get out there. And that's why I always had a fascination with local television. Whether it's good or bad, when it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it might be better. But anybody who can do live television or any kind of live broadcast in front of a camera or a microphone and be entertaining, I've always been gravitated to and studied to see how they do what it is they do in different ways. I'm sorry I'm rambling now.
0: No, this is this is great stuff because that's why I think uh, I, I have such a love for the old style entertainers, uh, I feel like they were so much more polished than than most people today because they were used to doing everything live. They were also constantly on the road, which is another wrestling analogy. They were always, yes. you know, some of these people were in vaudeville or burlesque or whatever it was. And they were used to, by the time you saw them doing comedy routines, because people will say, well, oh my God, the Marx Brothers and everything is down to a science and every word, every movement. And it's because they were like machines. When you saw the finished product in a movie or whatever, that was something they had done about 8,000 times by that point.
1: Yeah, in it, 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 Broadway or just in vaudeville or various scenes, W.C. Fields, his entire movie career practically was just rehashes of great vaudeville scenes he'd done when he worked for the Ziegfeld Follies or, you know, George White Scandals. And he was the... Greatest comedy juggler in the world, 20 years before he ever made a movie, but it's live entertainment and you don't get a second chance. And if you fuck up, you have to fucking work it in. And that's wrestling. It's that's both the physical aspect and the, the verbal aspect. It's wrestling one time and make it believable. And if you fuck up, try to work it in where they can't figure out you fucked up.
0: Well, let me ask you this, because this also interests me and it's kind of connected to that. Um, And by the way, I'm surprised that you didn't, well, because one of the things that you're very good at is just seemingly, whether it's true or not, but seeming to just come up with these things off the top of your head is such a skill. And I mean, look, you're doing these podcasts every week even and, and showing that. Um, is that that's not something everyone can do. And and it tells me a lot, not to bring it back to the WWF again, but the fact that Vince would okay having you do those kind of shoot commentaries that everybody (laughs) knows and loves. I mean, knowing Vince and knowing the way those shows are put together and how hard it is to get anything by him and on the air— obviously
1: he had to have immense confidence in you to let you just go off and do that. Well, but you know what? And I, I can't believe you, you need to research my YouTube channel because there was the story behind that. I had done it originally on the bite this program when nobody listened to bite this. Right. Right. And Kevin Kelly said, you can say whatever you want to say. And then Vince calls, it uh, calls me at home one day in Connecticut and said, what did you say? I'm like, he said, I could say whatever. No, no. <laughs> we had more listership response, whatever for that episode than we've had on all the other episodes all put together. I want you to say the same thing on raw. What? But. He didn't want to get sued, and he knew that I did have the propensity to go off, and they wanted it to be in one take. We didn't want to post-produce the thing, so he had me call Jerry McDivitt and tell Jerry McDivitt what I'd said and what I intended to say on the Raw show, and and he said, well, if you stick to that, you're fine.
0: Well, Jerry McDivitt, if there's one thing he's known for, it's his sense of humor.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean, as far as going over the line into slanderous statements or things like that, Right, right. But so I didn't go too far. I've Now that I've run it by him, I wrote it and had them put it on the teleprompter. You remember they had the teleprompter on the camera at the studio. We did it in front of the green screen. Yes. And the guy, I can't remember who was running the teleprompter, he said, I've never turned this thing so fast before. <laughs> <laughs> because they only gave me like three minutes, right? That's why I sound like the Federal Express guy. But I, I didn't consider it cheating. I've never written a promo. But since I wrote... I said the promo first off the top of my head and then paraphrased what I said and then wrote it that down and then delivered it somewhere in there. It's all still the way I really felt, right? I wasn't cheating. And there were a few others I did, right? He wanted to get Phil Mushnick. I said, I'll jump that motherfucker for you. <laughs> and, you know, whatever, a couple of the other things. But then... It wasn't, it, it, to me, it wasn't going anywhere. I just pop up and say these things every once in a while. And then I go back to the goddamn office and book third party promotions. What the fuck? And then I was getting heat with everybody. Cause I had to knock the WWF for shit. I couldn't just knock WCW. So I would try to, you know, be honest and and then hit them worse. Remember, I said you know. But Hulk Hogan, garbage. You're a household name, but so is garbage, and it stinks when it gets old too. That type of thing.
0: And you'd slip in a little compliment for somebody over there too, every right. now and then, like right. I, you know Arn Anderson. You'd put him over briefly, and then you'd just trash ten other guys right after that.
1: But uh, but then they started. Well, what about if you said that Kevin Dunn started suggesting things? The whole idea was I really meant all this shit. I could have gone further, yes, but what I said I really meant. I didn't want to start doing shit I didn't mean. And I and I didn't really see the purpose. So I just kind of kept my head down. One time they asked me, Well, Jim, have you got anything? Oh, I'm working on a little comedy, you know, just a doubt. I didn't want to do it. Cause then I, that meant I had to go to the fucking studio and goddamn put a suit on. God forbid when I, it it wasn't going anywhere. It was just a thing to inflame the internet, which was starting to be a thing. And I didn't see the use in it when I was already doing 18 other things.
0: Well, to show you what a complete mark I was when I first got, went to work for WWE, when they sent me to the, uh, the, the Pillman show in 2001. And I saw you running around backstage and you were wearing just like sweatpants and a t-shirt and I remember thinking to myself, like, in my head, I imagined that Jim Cornette wakes up in the morning and puts, <laughs> puts on this horrendous suit and just leaves it on until he goes to bed at night every single day of his life. And I'm going, wow, okay, Jim Cornette is like a human being who just kind of bums around. most yeah, of
1: Yeah, no, well, I was, except when I was in Connecticut, and they wanted everybody to dress up to go to the office. Did you, Were was that era over when you were...
0: There. Well, they went,
1: they, they flip-flopped
0: because, uh, in the nineties, that was the case from what I understand. Like you're saying Fridays,
1: uh, you didn't have to wear a tie on Fridays,
0: right? People have and told I found me out
1: from Bruce that if you got a, one of those goddamn dressy sweaters, you wouldn't have to wear a jacket. <laughs> so I did that as the lesser of two evils.
0: Well, people used to tell me that even in the corporate side, it was jacket and tie. And by the time I got there, because it was the attitude era and Vince had, you know, visited MTV and all this stuff. Um, We were, there was no dress code for a couple of years. You could wear whatever you want. And then what happened was people, not to put the blame on any individual people, but there were some people in the office that really started to push it too far. They started coming in like they were, there were women coming in, like they just walked in off the beach or something, or people just
1: Oh, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Now we know what started all the issues up there later on.
0: Well, they were and they were people who uh, would wear like they look like they wore to go to sleep and they would just roll into the office that way. And so it got to the point where they had to clamp it down. It never went back to jacket and tie, but it was unless you were on the road and then it was jacket and tie. But in the office, so, it became collared shirt, no sneakers, no jeans. And that was no that was
1: sneakers. It. No sneakers. I would nope. have had to fucking walk in on my hands. I had nothing else because <laughs> of my flat feet. But February 1996, the pay-per-view was in Omaha, Nebraska. Right? And that was when I first joined the creative team. The January pay-per-view, the Royal Rumble, Ro- for whatever reason, we were not together on that one. But it, it was February. That we we all go, into, the, the group that started traveling at that point was me, Jim Ross, Bruce Pritchard, and Vince McMahon four of us in the car or going to the TVs and the pay-per-views or whatever creative team lead announcer head honcho. So we're at the hotel and the, the morning of the pay-per-view it's 11 o'clock in the morning. The, the arena is literally across the street. You walk out the front door of the hotel, you walk across the street and into the arena and we're going over for the production meeting, which begins at 11 o'clock, right? And so I get out of the elevator to meet these guys Walk cross street at a quarter to 11 and I'm wearing a t-shirt and some sweatpants and I've got my fucking suit bag with my gimmick because I'm still on camera as a manager. My suit the racket the whole nine yards is over my shoulder. My briefcase go walk cross street with these guys. <laughs> Bruce looks at me like I have steaming turds hanging out of my mouth. <laughs> And right as he says, what and Vince turns around and he looks the same way. And Jr. looks over and rolls his eyes because he knows something I don't. And what's up? The... Are you going to go dressed that way? What are you talking? Where's your suit? I said, it's here in my fucking bag. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. We're walking across the street. I'm going to put a fucking suit on. <laughs> and Vince says, we'll wait until you change clothes, pal. To, there was no fans there. There was like no, it wasn't a Grateful Dead concert. They weren't <laughs> camped out in fucking tents. Nobody was, the, the TV crew was barely there, and they were wearing, it looked like they were bikers, right? But to walk in the building with Vince, you had to be dressed professionally. Yeah. So I went back upstairs hotel room, put my fucking suit on, walked across the street, sat down in a production meeting, And nobody besides employees working for the company saw me for the next six fucking hours.
0: Yep. That's especially around him. That's how it was. I went down to, um, when he was inducted into the Madison square garden hall of fame, I went down and I covered that. And this was before they brought the dress code back in the office, but I still went down there on the subway, the whole nine yards with a, with a full suit and tie because I knew that he was going to spot me in the crowd. Because <laughs> I think by that point he might have actually known that I worked for him. He was going to spot me, and and I would have heard it. I just knew it. I would have heard it if I wasn't, you know, dressed the right way. Well, way. there's,
1: but also yeah. there's a difference in attending a Hall of Fame ceremony and walking across a fucking street past an eighteen wheeler. Oh well, I'm not belching fucking diesel fumes.
0: Well, let me let me ask you this because I know. Our our time is fleeting, like the like the ghost of Christmas past. You know? Like
1: sands like, through the hourglass, so are go. the days
0: of our lives. And, and this kind of connects to what we were talking about, where um, you know you had been a fan of wrestling before you ever got involved. You were passionate about it, and there are other people that we hear about, like Bobby Heenan. I know had been a big fan way before he got into business. And we, we, of course, Paul Heyman, you know, we know all about that. People like that. Now, nowadays we hear this a lot and I've seen it a lot uh, where, and it can be a negative where everybody likes to talk about how, you know, the locker room's full of marks these days. And I'm not disputing that because I think there's a lot of truth to that maxim that you get people that are yes. marks for the business. And, and now they're the ones that are in the locker rooms and running the show. Now, obviously nobody would ever accuse bobby heenan of being a mark for the business or you or Heyman, or people like that so where's the distinction in your mind of somebody who genuinely loves the business because not everybody who's in it does i mean some people are just you know they're they're just in it for the money and they couldn't care less about anything else where's the line between that and people who are just marks for the business that are in the business
1: well, here's the thing. Bill Dundee said he was my first booker when they put me into business. He said, Cornet, if we ever smarten you up, it'll kill your gimmick. And he, there you go. And, and there was truth to that in that I was a huge wrestling fan, but I did not know how it worked on the inside and how to do it until the veterans and the people with experience taught me and Back then, it was even more so. It was actually easier because you came into the business with no preconceived notions. The first time I heard the phrase high spot, I was in the fucking uh, Channel 5 uh, break room for my first appearance on television. The amount of inside knowledge that was available and the amount of people that knew it was minute. Minute. Uh, for the first half of the years I was a photographer, I didn't know there was a Booker. I said, well, that promoter Nick Goulis or Jerry Jared or who He's making these matches, whatever You didn't know So you had no preconceived notions and no Bad habits, right? But there's a difference between being A fan of the business and being a Mark, and that's what People like Dave Meltzer don't understand. Oh, if you call a fan a mark, it's an ends. Well, it is. Don't call a fan a mark. Call a mark a mark. You can be a fan of something and respect it and not want to change it just because, hey, you can do something that might get over with people and it makes everybody else in the business and on the card look like shit. It makes the business itself look like shit, but it'll be good for you. So you'll just figure out a way to do it. Or, boy, I, you know, I've been doing this for six months or a year, so I got this all figured out, and I'm going to change all of this shit that nobody's changed for the last 40 years because it, <laughs> it needs to be changed, and I'm the only one smart enough to have come up with this. There the, And Tony Khan books like a mark because that's what he did as a mark. He booked an, an Efed, And, guys, they have glorified the moves of wrestling without glorifying the actual in their mind, the actual wrestling business. When I got in, even though I became a manager, I wrestled with friends like every teenage wrestling fan did in the seventies. And you know what we were doing? We were saying, Hey referee pulled my hair and we were pulling foreign objects out of our tights. And we were cutting the promos, trash talking each other. And occasionally somebody would uncork a body slam But since we didn't have a real ring and it was probably on somebody's floor, we oh, fuck, we don't want to do that again. Let's go back to the headlock and the thumb and the throat because we wanted to be wrestlers, not gymnasts or cheerleaders. But now the generation that has romanticized the ridiculous stunt show, wrestling, diving off the roof, breaking furniture everywhere, popping the people incessantly over and over, it's like, it's like empty calories. It's like just eating fucking M&M's all day long. Do you remember how good one individual M&M tasted out of the bag? So, those are marks. People that are doing a product for a very small audience that is proven by the ratings. And instead of in, in instead of respecting and concentrating when you get in the business on what the business is and how to succeed in it make people care about you as a person not you as a fucking crash test dummy uh, 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 develop the ability to either speak and connect with people or connect with people with your physicality in the ring but not at the expense of your goddamn going to put yourself on a ventilator or an iron lung by the time you're 35. So that's the point is that Bobby Heenan was a fan of wrestling and he respected it. And when he got in it, he felt lucky to be in it and it was fun. He told me his first night in wrestling bruiser told him show up at the office at such and such time on such and such day. And he did. And they said, okay, you want to be a manager? We're sending you to Louisville with the assassins, who at that time were Guy Mitchell and Joe Tommaso. But one of them didn't show up. I think it was Joe Tommaso. So they put Bobby under the hood as the other assassin. He'd never wrestled or managed. And he just stood on the apron and guy did all the fucking work. But they got so much heat, it was here at the Louisville Gardens. A fan tried to fucking grab him, Bobby. and then. They went back to the locker room, and that was Wee Willie Davis, the old-time wrestler, 6'9", 300 Mm -hmm. pounds, was a local promoter. And he also worked with the sheriff's department. Johnny Valentine was on the card and had gotten drunk and went out and got into it with the cops that were working the shows. And they wanted to arrest Valentine for public drunkenness, which they ended up doing and made the newspaper. But Valentine barricaded himself in the locker room and wouldn't come out, so Wee Willie Davis went in and took a fucking... Nightstick and started beating Valentine over the fucking head. And then Bobby gets back in the car and they're headed back to Indianapolis. They go one mile from downtown Louisville. They go across the bridge, across the Ohio river. There's a wreck. And Bobby says, he said, not only is a car on fire, but a guy is running at him on fucking fire. What a way to get in. They get back to Indianapolis. He opens his pay envelope. He got like fucking $20. He said, "Okay, I went down there. I got attacked by a fan. I saw a fucking police incident, a man beaten with a nightstick, a fucking flaming human at a car wreck, and did a 250 mile round trip. All that for twenty dollars. When can I do this again?"
0: No wonder he always hated Dick the Bruiser. Yeah, you know, I wondered about that.
1: But well, that came later. He yeah, he was still happy at that <laughs> point. I, there's other things off the air, but yeah. But I nevertheless, know. the point is Bobby was a fan. Paul Lee was a fan of wrestling, but he was a fan more in the area of how he could be a personality in it and a a verbal, uh, you know, uh, uh, a cunning linguist, as they say. He never wanted to be physical in any way. And I knew that I had to be able to be physical enough to to fulfill the manager's role of getting the shit kicked out of me, even though I could never work like Bobby Heenan. But we were... (laughs) None of us wanted to fucking crash through furniture on purpose in (laughs) uncontrolled ways or catch spinning human beings from great heights. We wanted to be wrestlers in the wrestling business and fucking cut promos and be on TV and get all the women and draw money and get paid money. But they would rather cut their heads and fucking hurt themselves in front of 300 people than be on national television in a meaningful spot And I don't get it
0: Well Jim I think we've gotten perilously close here To talking about contemporary wrestling Which I had vowed we weren't <laughs> going to do we're, we're flirting around the edges of it And
1: um, We're as allowed people... to draw some contrast But but no I'll, yes. I'll, I'll close that up And I'll say Fans are not marks Fans are the people who support things And who respect things And who enjoy things and don't try to change. They don't. Basketball fans don't want the inbounds pass to be made across coiled barbed wire, <laughs> you know, that's set on fire. They they don't want say new, that.
0: They don't give them ideas.
1: But no, they want new, interesting players to be doing it. But they want them to be playing the same game. And it, marks are the people in wrestling who take it to such ridiculous extent that they can't see what the business is supposed to be about to uh, to everybody's detriment that's all i'll say
0: well you would think that would be simple and and uh, elementary but apparently it's not and you know for people that enjoyed that response they can hear you address very similar topics 7 to 8 hours a week on the jim cornette experience maybe and, more <laughs> and the drive through with jim cornette and i would uh, if I could give a plug to those kind of obscure wrestling podcasts that people may or may not have heard of. Um, but Jim, I, I can't thank you enough for for carving some time out to do this. I mean, I know I'm joking about it, but I know that what you and Brian do is is such a time commitment, and you're talking constantly all day long, every day, probably more than you ever did uh, when you when you were on television.
1: No, that uh, that is correct. If because now, say I don't have the long rides in the car where I can just sit quietly, so I'm always talking. So you're correct, but I would I would, I've enjoyed giving you my time. Oh well, that's the greatest
0: compliment I could hope for. So so now, pretty soon
1: I'll even I'll be even more enjoying taking asking for it back.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll I'll let you get to whatever you were going to get to, and maybe to give your give your vocal cords a rest and get prepared for the next. Uh, session whenever that is with Brian and, you know, and, and just take a little break and drink your Sprite and relax.
1: There you go. And you know what they say, just shut up and wrestle.
0: <laughs> there you have it, folks. My conversation with James E. Cornett for this 100th episode of shut up and wrestle. Thank you, Jim for taking the time out of your busy schedule to give me a little bit of your time. And I hope that it was worth it for you. And when I'm on the subject of thanks, I have a few thank yous I want to make here with this being the 100th episode. I would like first and foremost to thank my wife, Jamie, who is so understanding, who is so tolerant of a lot of this wrestling Michigas. And I'm very grateful. She puts up with it. She supports me. She believes in me. And I mean it very realistically and seriously when I say there would be no shut up and wrestle without the beautiful Jamie Smith Solomon. So thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Also, as I mentioned, thank you to the great Brian Last for giving me the platform to put this show together, for giving me a forum to connect with you, my fellow fans of vintage professional wrestling. I want to thank the whole Arcadian Vanguard team. Now that I think about it, I want to thank Jace Nakarado, who of course was my guest last week. Hope you enjoyed that. But I want to thank Jace. He is kind of the wizard behind the scenes here in terms of editing and production. And he has jumped in when necessary to help make sure that Shut Up and Wrestle is as pleasant a listen as it can possibly be. So thank you to Jace. And I want to thank my many guests the dozens and dozens of people who have taken time out of their schedule to appear on this show and talk to me, a nobody in the world of wrestling, thanks to all of you wonderful, bright, insightful, intelligent people. And there will be many, many more of them to come as we embark onto the next hundred episodes of Shut Up and Wrestle and beyond. So thanks for listening. And where are the many places where you can listen to the show? You can listen on our website, suawpod.com. You can listen wherever you find podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You know where to go. And if you tune in next week, I'd like to let you know my guest for the 101st episode is going to be the frequent co-host of another great Arcadian Vanguard podcast, the Stick to Wrestling podcast. He is Steve Generelli. Steve will be my guest next week. And if you stay tuned in the weeks to come, I've got a lot of other phenomenal guests on the way. I've got John Finkel, the author of next year's biography of the Macho Man Randy Savage. He will be here to talk all about the Macho Man I've got Lucha Libre, and Japanese wrestling historian Roy Luscher on the way, as well as a very special conversation about the Iron Claw, the Von Erich family film that I'm going to be having with my longtime friend and colleague, a lifelong wrestling fan, film critic, and historian, BJ Colangelo. will be coming to Shut Up and Wrestle. You are not going to want to miss that one. So keep listening as we move along. I promise you I will do my best to make this show worth your time each and every week, as I hope that I already have. And while I have your attention, there's many other projects that I work on that I would like to direct you to if you are so interested. There are my books, such as Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, as well as Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. They are available wherever books are sold. You can go to Amazon. That's the easy way. But if you're lucky, you might even find them in a brick and mortar bookstore. By the way, if you would like to contribute to this show, to Shut Up and Wrestle, I would direct you to my Twitter account, Brian R. Solomon. You will find a contribution button at the top. You can contribute via Venmo, via Cash App, if you are so inclined. If you are inclined to contribute via PayPal. I can be found at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com. No pressure at all. And thank you to the people who have contributed. I am very grateful. If you want to show your appreciation for the show, those are the places to do it. Additionally, I would draw your attention to the wrestling news. Available every morning from the Arcadian Vanguard. I am the news director. Mike Sempervivi is the producer and the voice of The Wrestling News. Check it out at thewrestlingnews.com. You can subscribe there. It's also available at the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Get it at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes Magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media You will find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My author page on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website out on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon. Asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying thank you, I fuck you, bye. I so long, wrestling fans.